0: Hello Restoration family, welcome to another week of teaching as we continue to dive into the practice of forgiveness. Today is week three and we are diving into the first part of what it looks like to forgive others and this week is called Forgiving is Absorbing. I am absolutely in love with the story of Joseph and just all of the things that he navigated and endured and how God was so faithful. And so, man, I really hope that you feel absolutely encouraged as you navigate this with us. And um, yeah, I'm going to turn it over to Landon Myers, who's going to be doing the teaching. Thanks for uh,
1: joining us this morning. As Jeremy said, if you're new, uh, my name's Landon, and I'm thankful to get to be one of the uh, team members here with Restoration Church and we are on our third week in the middle of uh, what we call a forgiveness practice. And what we mean by that is, is this. We believe that the only person who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment, as in in every moment, is Jesus. Not a spouse, not a friend, not a parent, no one else can claim that title of trustworthy always but Jesus. And so we believe that and we want to live into that. We take it seriously. What that means is that we want to practice the way of Jesus. I think sometimes we maybe pretend that Christianity, that following Jesus is easier than it actually is. He never promised that it would be easy and I think it actually takes and requires practice. And one of the things that he calls us to do is forgive and that's really hard. And so we're spending the entire month of February in what we call this forgiveness practice. We're talking about it on Sundays. And then we believe that forgiveness goes, or excuse me, practice is better with a team. And so we have groups that are meeting throughout the week to figure out how to do this and, and what it looks like. And so um, please continue to be praying for the people that are in those groups. We're excited to see how God works and transforms and, and moves in this time. Uh, this morning 's going to be a little bit different. I want to give you kind of just a, a warning up front and And this is why my job or any of us what we 're doing on a sunday the the whole purpose is to present who God is. Nothing else matters but who God is and there 's different ways to go about that. We often are going to read through a specific scripture and break it down and learn a new phrase or cultural context or whatever it might be. But sometimes the only way to really grasp who God is is to see the repetition and the patterns of his character in relationship with his people over time. And so it's great to wake up and do a devotional or we come here and we break Mark down a little by little over like two years. But sometimes we just have to read a more significant chunk of the scriptures to see the patterns of who God is. And so this morning we're going to do that. And up front, here's the the reality for you this morning. We're going to read a lot of the Bible, um, kind of from Genesis 37 to Um, 50-ish. So this is what's going to happen. You're going to get out of this morning what you put in. If you want to kind of check out and go too much reading well, then you're not going to get anything out of it. However, if you're willing to really engage with us this morning and go on this journey to see the pattern of who God is and how he relates to his people, in this case, it's the account of Joseph, I think you'll be blessed by that. I think you'll leave with a deeper understanding and conviction and connection to who God is. And so I encourage you to dive in uh, with us in that. I read a quote about six months ago by by Tim Keller on forgiveness, and it says this You cannot forgive somebody without absorbing the cost. Either that person pays for it or you do. On the cross, God didn't just forgive us, He paid the cost Himself. When I read that, it it really resonated, and this is why. So often we bring up this, this topic of forgiveness. And I feel like it just lives in this ethereal world. And you go, okay, I just say those words, I forgive you. And then it'll all be better. Well, we can try that and it just doesn't work. We can wonder, how how do we actually forgive? And this resonates because it makes sense. We've, throughout the series, used this definition for forgiveness. That forgiveness is releasing myself and my offender from the responsibility of bringing about justice. And instead, trusting Jesus to handle it. Well, in order to release myself and the offender, what we actually have to do is absorb the pain and the cost. And we see Joseph do that. So we're going to dive into uh, what that looks like today. Another way to put it is this. Forgiveness is not just releasing the right to pay back who has hurt you. It is also absorbing the cost through the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit's power in this is going to be essential. And we'll, we'll see that this morning, um, so let's go ahead and dive in. We'll be in begin in Genesis chapter thirty-seven, uh, verse one. We read this: Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At seventeen years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now, Israel, which is another name for Jacob, this is his father, loved Joseph more than his other sons, because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age. We have some favoritism going on here, and so, as you can imagine, that's going to stir up some conflict. And he made a robe of many colors for him. The the colors thing seems weird to us, but in a culture where you couldn't just go to the local store to buy the... uh, clothes you wanted and whatever color you wanted, like color was hard to come by. And so if you had clothing that was colorful, it meant you were wealthy. It was a, a symbol of honor. And so for Joseph's father to give him this signified that he was more important to Joseph than any of the others. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly mine stood up, and yours gathered around it and bowed down to me. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? If you have siblings, can you fathom one of them telling you your future in this way? I left that out when my sister was at our first gathering. (laughs) (laughs) So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and 11 stars, which he has 11 brothers, were bowing down to me. He told his father and brothers, but his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you had, he said? Are your mother and brothers and I going to come and bow down to the ground before you? And the answer to that question was yes. They didn't know it yet. Joseph probably did not know it yet. Here's the thing, though. That would become a reality because God gave Joseph these dreams. And these dreams that God gave to him would get him in a lifetime of trouble. Once again, God gave him the dreams, and they were going to lead him down a path filled with suffering and punishment and hardship. And we'll see that in just a moment. Joseph, being kind of loved the most, he's not having to do the hardest work of the land. His brothers are out shepherding and attending to the flocks. And his dad says, hey, go check on them. Do a a checkup for me. And they spot him as he's coming to, to check on them. And you can imagine some of the animosity maybe that they're feeling after their days of hard work in the land when they see their brother wearing his uh, fancy robe. And so we, we pick up in verse 18. They, his brothers, saw him in the distance and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben, who's the oldest, so he has the most authority, heard this, he tried to save Joseph from them. He said, let's not take his life. Don't shed blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. He intended to rescue him from their hands and return him to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off his robe, the robe of many colors that he had on. Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And naturally, after leaving their brother to die in a pit, they sat down to eat a meal. They looked up, and there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. Then Judah, remember this name, said to his brothers, What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And they agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben, not the lunch, returned to the pit, but remember this name because it's going to be important, And saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a young goat, and dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the robe of many colors to their father and said, we found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? And Jacob mourns the death of his son, and he weeps, and he's never going to be the same. Other people's sin caused Joseph pain and suffering and hardship. And now he's not been killed, but he's been sold into slavery. He's delivered to Egypt. He's purchased there. And really, it seems as if his life is over. All because of other people's sin. Because God gave him some dreams. But but then we... We see something unique, beginning in chapter 39, and it's going to be really important. We'll start to see this pattern developed. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guard bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. Here's the the four key words for this morning. The Lord was with. He's been sold into slavery, likely abused and beaten and all kinds of things along the the path to get there. He's sold, and then we read, the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw, here we go again, that the Lord was with him, and in case we aren't recognizing, that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor in his master's sight and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. It's like, five to six instances of the Lord being with Joseph. The author here wants us to really grasp that. Pain, hardship, suffering, because God gave him some dreams and then because of other people's sin, but God is with him. You think that's good? And then we continue uh, to, to read about one of the stories that if you grew up in church, you probably heard a lot in like, Sunday school or youth group, and we'll, which is ironic because it's kind of explicit, but we'll read it here. It says, now Joseph was well built and handsome. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. She didn't think it was going to be very complicated. She just thought she'd make the offer. He'd say, yes, it'd be good to go. And it didn't work out that way. In verse 8, he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me, here my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. So how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? He does the right thing. He cares for his master, he honors him, he makes the moral choice. Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now one day he went into the house to do his work, and none of the household servants were there. She's going to get a little bit more intentional with her plan. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. Now that's like the classic verse, right? Like when you face temptation... Just leave wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, whatever you have, and sprint the other way, and everything's going to be fine. God's going to honor it, and things will go well because you made the moral good choice. And following Jesus is about being a good person. Verse 13, though. But when she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she had new plans. She called the household servants that she had probably kicked out. Look! She said to them, my, my husband bought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me. And I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment with me and ran outside. She put Joseph's garment beside her until her master came home. Then she told him the story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment with me and ran outside. When his master heard the story... They had a good relationship to this point. He was furious. He felt betrayed. How could Joseph do this to him? So now, framed for rape, his life seemingly over once again because of someone else's sin, he's thrown into prison. Second time, God gave him some dreams. And then other people's sin caused pain and suffering. But as we will uh, continue to see, there's there's more to the pattern. Verse 21 of of chapter 39. Here we go again with those four words, right? But the Lord was with. The Lord was with Joseph. Kind of sounds crazy. He's framed for rape. His own family says, you know what, we're going to kill you. Ah, never mind. We'd rather get something out of it. 20 pieces of silver sounds good. We'll just sell you into slavery. Throughout all of this, originally starting with dreams God gave him, the Lord Was with him and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority. Once again, in case we're not understanding what this is about, because we're really good at making it about us when we read the scriptures what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to learn? But the key here is who is God? And how does he act? And what we, what can we expect from him? One more time. It's because, verse 23, the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything that he did successful. There's this pattern. Sin of other people, suffering and pain, he endures because of them, but all throughout it, never was there a moment that God left him. Never was there a moment That he was forsaken. The Lord was with him always. I don't have time. We don't have time to read the next section. But what happens is he's in the prison, and eventually there's some sort of coup between uh, some of the leaders in Pharaoh's court the chief baker and the chief cupbearer. And they're accused of some things. So they're sent to prison, and since Joseph runs the prison, he uh, gets to know them. And eventually, on the same night, they have a dream. And so they're talking about it, and Joseph interprets it for them. And he says, here's what's going to happen. One of you, because of what you did, is going to be executed. The other is going to be freed. But listen, when you're freed, remember me so that I can be saved from this place. You go, know, oh, this is like a spot of luck. God's working again. And it happens just as he said. Pharaoh calls them both. They're kind of put on this trial. One is executed and one is freed. But what happens? He forgets Joseph. For how long? Two years. About 730 days. 17,520 hours. After all that's happened to him. Framed for rape. Sold into slavery. Beaten. All of this. And now he's sitting in prison. Ever experienced when someone wrongs you deeply and the last thing you want to do is think about it? So maybe you try to distract yourself or you take on a new venture, you pursue something good, or maybe you engage in something bad just to, to not have to think about it. Then you're left with time. And anytime you're left with time and you start swimming in your own thoughts, it just keeps coming back. 17,000 hours. It's a long time in a prison to be thinking about all that was happening. All that happened. To remember his brothers and the anger he must feel, the betrayal. How about being angry at God for the dreams he'd been given that started all this? Potiphar's wife for framing him, and he just sits there thinking and thinking and thinking. Finally, after those 17,000 hours, Pharaoh has a dream and he asks people to interpret it, and nobody can. And so finally, (laughs) excuse me, in that moment, the cupbearer finally remembers, oh yeah, there's this guy I was supposed to remember two years ago. He can probably tell you your dream. And so they, they summon uh, Joseph to uh, speak to Pharaoh. We read in chapter 41, verse 14. Pharaoh sent for Joseph and they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes and went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it Said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. This next line is one of the most important things we're going to talk about today. It really needs to become something we familiarize ourselves with and speak frequently. And honestly, it's probably the key to forgiveness. Joseph knew his place. He says this, I am not able to. As we talk about this crazy topic of forgiveness that Jesus himself calls us into, five of the most important words that we probably need to declare might be, I am not able to. It's not the end of it, but that's a key first phrase. He says, I am not able to. It is God who can. When it comes to forgiveness, we are not able to do what Jesus calls us to. It's not in our human nature. This is a divine gift and grace and mercy that we have to rely upon him. He says, it is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream and Joseph says, here's what's gonna happen. Here's what it means. There's gonna be seven years of abundance and plenty and then there's gonna be seven years of famine. And so what you should do is plan accordingly, save, tax the people. That way you can take care of them in the famine because you know ahead of time that it's going to happen. And we read that Pharaoh is extremely pleased with this idea. And so we pick up in verse 37. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, here we go. Keep in mind, in Egypt, this is the powerhouse, ruling nation of the world at the time. Pharaoh considered himself to be divine, to be a god. And that man, the ruler of the world who considers himself to be divine, says this. Can we find anyone like this man? Here's that theme. A man who has God's spirit in him. Not for a minute was he alone. And again, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God, he's doing the work, has made all this known to you, there is no one as intelligent and wise as you are. You'll be over my house and all my people will obey your commands. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you we see the same theme. Now he's been sold into slavery, beaten, framed for rape, forgotten in prison, spends thousands and thousands and thousands of hours remembering, soaking in the emotion, and trying to forget. All through that, he ends up being in charge of what their world as a whole was. God allows him to flourish. God blesses him. He, He never leaves him. And then we Go to verse 50. In this time, two sons were born to Joseph before the years of famine arrived. A senith daughter of Potipharah, priest that on, bore them to him. He's given a wife. And then we get to the names of the children. And names of the children in this culture are incredibly significant. In many ways, they define the lives of the children. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. And look what it means. God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. Now, that, that word forget kind of means something more to do of being able to get over and overcome and move on from. But there's, there's a level of irony here. His son, right, this is how it works, is born and starts crying and then starts crawling and eventually walking and growing up. And every time that he calls out his name Manasseh, He is going to be reminded that he cannot forget everything that happened to him in his father's house. His firstborn son will literally be a living, walking, breathing reminder of everything. Though he's saying, God has caused me to forget. There's an irony there. And then we read the the name of his next son, Ephraim, meaning God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph has not forgotten. We can't just forget. We talked about this in the previous weeks. That's why forgiving forgiving and forgetting, that just doesn't work. It's not what God did for us. In fact, it's much more meaningful that he remembers and still loves us. Now the famine has arrived, and his family's in trouble. There's no food. But they hear that there's food in Egypt, and so Jacob says, we're going to send all the family there because we're going to die if we don't get food, and there's food in Egypt. Little do they know that the brother they sold into slavery is now in charge. And so they get there. We read about this in chapter 42, and we'll begin in verse 7. Of all the people in Egypt, they come to see Joseph because Joseph is in charge of the distribution of the food. When Joseph saw his brothers, can you imagine that? After all these years, after all he's been through, another day, there's people coming for food all the time. He's named his son in an attempt to just get over and get past what has happened. And then he's sitting there probably in some fancy royal chair, and then his brothers walk in. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. He did what you would expect. He treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them Can you imagine the emotion as you start to remember after all these years? He's tried to forget, but he remembers. You are spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land. No, my lord. Your servants have come to buy food, they said. We are all, we are all sons of one man. We are honest. What do you think he felt? What do you think he felt when they are telling him that they are honest? Your servants are not spies? No, he said to them, you have come to see the weakness of the land, but they replied, we your servants were 12 brothers the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, the youngest is now with our father and one is no longer living. Now they're telling him about him. Then Joseph said to them, I have spoken, you are spies. Can you imagine this wrestling match emotionally? And and he's deciding, here's my opportunity to finally get back. He goes, this is how you'll be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one from among you to get your brother. The rest of you will be imprisoned so that your words can be tested to see if they are true. He says, you say you are honest. We'll see, because I know better. If they are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he probably thought he would get a lot of joy out of these three days. So Joseph, in verse 17, imprisoned them together for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God. Do this and you will live. If you are honest, that's one more reminder. Let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go and take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed. Then you won't die. And they can sense it to this. Now listen, they know what they did in verse 21. They say to each other, obviously we're being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress. Here's another emotional cue. When he pleaded with us, that's what Joseph's remembering. Being in the pit as his brothers ate their lunch and pleading for his life and then being sold into slavery and then working his way up and then being framed for rape and then going to prison and all the time God is with him and then he's forgotten. And then here's this moment after he names his son, God has allowed me to forget and it all comes rushing back. He can't escape what has happened. We can't escape, no matter the things we turn to, no matter how fast we run, or try to hide from the things that have happened in our lives, often caused, sometimes by our own sin, but often by other people's sin. They're not things that can be escaped. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this trouble has come to us. Remember Reuben. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph understood them. He's sitting there listening to all of this in his own language because there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and he wept. Little by little, he's absorbing this pain. Then he turned back and spoke to them. He took Simeon. Simeon is the second oldest brother. Reuben's the oldest. Reuben tried to save him. That means Simeon holds, bears the weight of the most fault in this moment. He took Simeon from them and had him bound before their eyes. I think that's intentional language. He's trying to get back at them. And in particular, the one who was most at fault. Joseph then gave orders to fill their containers with grain, return each man's money to a sack, and give them provisions for the journey. And that's what happened. They go back, one less brother. And they go and they tell their dad, hey, this is what happened. Simeon's no longer with us. We saw this man. He said, we have to leave one there. We left Simeon. He bound him. And the only way we'll see him again is if we bring our youngest brother, who is now Jacob's prized possession. Jacob says, no, we're not doing that. Until years go by and they're out of food again. And they have no option if they want to survive. And so Jacob has no choice. And he sends Benjamin, the youngest brother, to Egypt. Read about it in chapter 43, verse 29. They've now arrived back in Egypt. They're in front of Joseph once again after these years. More time to soak in the hurt and the pain when he looked up and saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son. This is the only brother that was born to him uh, with the same mom. And he asked, is this your youngest brother that you told me about? Then he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion and he couldn't show it for his brother. And he was about to weep. Notice though, he had the composure to get out, okay? It's gonna matter. He went into an inner room to weep. Then he washed his face because he couldn't be seen like that and came out regaining his composure, he said, serve the meal. They served him by himself, his brother by themselves, and the Egyptians who were eating with him by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews since that is abhorrent to them. They were seated before him in order by age, from the firstborn to the youngest. The men looked at each other in astonishment because there's no way that this man from Egypt could know the exact age of them. Portions were served to them from Joseph's table, and Benjamin's portion was five times larger than any of theirs. Does that sound familiar? All of a sudden, his brother, his true brother, his full brother, receives five times more. He is the favored one in this dinner. And it doesn't tell us why exactly Joseph does this, but it seems as if he might be trying to incite the other brothers to do something again to once again, as they did with him, be angry and take it out upon Benjamin, though it wasn't his fault. That way, though justice was not available for him, maybe he could provide the justice on his behalf and his brothers in this moment. Nothing happens, though. They have this feast, and then Joseph lets them go. And he gives them all their money back. He gives them food. They think they're off the hook. Simeon's released, and they start the journey back, except for one little detail. Joseph, having been framed, decides his next move and his plan for justice. Because it's very clear at this point, right? He's not released himself from the responsibility of bringing about justice. He's working on it. And he's certainly not released them From the responsibility of restoration, restitution, and justice, he's working on that. So he puts his own cup. This is a symbol. It's not like a cup we have. The cup that symbolizes who he is and his position and his honor. You could probably equate it something to like his coat of many colors. It was a picture of his status. And he places it in Benjamin's bag without Benjamin knowing. And they start on their journey. And then Joseph sends his servant to catch them, tells them what to do. And he says, Hey, something's missing. You've stolen my master's cup. And they said, No, we haven't. We're honest men. They're sure of it because none of them have stolen anything. He says, Okay, well, let me check your bags and you'll be good to go. One by one by one, they check until they get to Benjamin. And there it is. And so they're forced to return. And we read about it in chapter 44, beginning in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house, he was still there. They promised to become his slaves if they had indeed taken something, and there it is. Now you remember, Judah is the one who sold him into slavery. They fell to the ground before him. And this vision has been fulfilled. What is this you have done? Joseph is speaking probably of multiple things in this moment. What is this you have done? Joseph said to them. Didn't you know that a man like me could uncover the truth by divination? By his own power, on his own effort, he's still trying to bring about this justice, to deal with this thing that he cannot escape, even though he's named his children uh, accordingly in an effort to do so. And Judah replies, What can we say to my Lord? How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? And Joseph is probably thinking, you have no idea, but I'll take care of this justice thing. God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. Then Joseph said, I swear that I will not do this. The man in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. I'm going to read this next section in its entirety. And as I do, I want you to kind of like feel the culmination of this. Listen to the emotion, to the implications as Judah speaks as the one who had sold Joseph into slavery, which then led to Potiphar's house where he's framed for rape, which then leads to prison where he's forgotten, which then leads to this moment where he tried to forget. And these memories chase him. But Judah approached Joseph and said, Sir, Please let your servant speak personally to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant. Can you imagine? Can you imagine after all of that, he comes up and says, do not be angry, for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked the servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, my Lord, we have an elderly father and a younger brother, the child of his old age. The boy's boy's father, brother, excuse me, is dead. Again, speaking of Joseph to Joseph. He's the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him to me so that I can see him. But we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he were to leave, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, if your younger brother does not come down with you, you will not see me again. Again, we go into this moment, and here's Judah having this conversation, conversation with just Joseph. And he's already wept multiple times, and he's had the composure to go and hide it. And you can almost feel the tears welling up. Once again, the release that's going to happen. He said, this is what happened when we went back to your servant, my father. We reported your words to him. But our father said, go again and buy us some food. We told him, we cannot go down unless our younger brother goes with us. So if our younger brother is not with us, we cannot see the man. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left. I said that he must have been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him again. If you also take this one from me, and anything happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol and sorrow. So if I come to your servant, my father and the boy is not with us. His life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol and sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, If I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. And he pleads with Joseph, Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Now to this point... Joseph has been toying with the idea and dabbling with bringing about justice. He's still holding on to that responsibility for himself and for his brothers. And there's been this wrestling match of what he's going to do. And here's the reality. There's a difference for Joseph and us. And the things that you've faced in life and the things that maybe we will face in the future, oftentimes, we do not have the power to execute justice when we want to. When the emotions rise and we want to handle it and we want to do what's needed, we don't have the power or the authority to do that. But Joseph did. In this moment, Joseph could do whatever he wanted. He can have them tortured, killed, separated, imprisoned. Whatever he wants to do, he can do to them. And he's dabbled with that. But then there's the shift, I think, that is happening in this moment when Joseph recognizes something. And it's important. It's hard. But it's important for us to remember, adding new pain does not take away old pain. Us adding new pain for things that have happened does not, will not, cannot take away old pain. We as humanity have tried it over and over and over again. You've probably tried it. There's many times in my life I want to still try it. It doesn't work. And that's a bummer. (laughs) It feels like, God, can't we just like, do it this way? But that's not the way of Jesus. That's not in the character of who our God is. If you drop a sponge into a bowl of water, and then you dip your hand in and take it out, the sponge isn't going to be completely saturated. It's not going to fully have absorbed the water. It takes time. And it's awful to hear, but forgiveness takes time. It isn't something that can be rushed. See, sometimes we think when it comes to forgiveness, all we have to do is utter those words, I forgive you. As a side note, uh, when we say we're practicing forgiveness, it's probably not wise to go to people that have offended you, hurt you, sinned against you, and to let them know that you've forgiven them. That's not what it means. It probably has a good chance of doing more harm than good. It's something internal. It's us releasing them. They probably don't even know. Now, there's a time and place to let them know you got to be really cautious and intentional with that. Probably seek some counsel. Forgiveness takes time, though. Sometimes forgiveness means absorbing the pain of future sins or of something that's happening that's going to cause pain down the road. But I don't think we can actually release ourselves or those that have offended us, not like a slight offense, but harmed us. We can't forgive them without absorbing the pain. That's how it works. That's how forgiveness actually makes sense. There's a cost to be paid, and somebody will pay it. It cannot just be wiped away. It doesn't work that way. It can't just be forgotten, though we try hard. Chapter 45. Joseph Okay, here's, here's, a little, here's a little difference, right? He's had his composure two times. He's been able to keep it and go weep somewhere else. And here's what happens. There's a shift in this moment. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants. Sometimes us losing our composure is like the most important thing that can happen when it comes to our relationship with God. See, Joseph has known. I'm sure he's had doubts and had anger with God, but he's known God has been with him. That doesn't make it easy, though. But in this moment, he fully releases. He fully absorbs it. He fully releases himself and his brothers, his family, Potiphar's wife, from what has happened. He can no longer keep it together in front of all his attendants. So he just yells. It's different. The other times he said, I'm going to be right back. And he goes and he weeps somewhere else. He can't do it. He doesn't have time. There's too much going on. And so he just yells, everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly, you can feel the pain, that the Egyptians heard it. And also Pharaoh's household heard it next door. That's some loud weeping. There's a lot that had happened in Joseph's life. He'd been through a lot because of other people's sin. But there was not one moment that God was not with him and for him in it. Joseph didn't understand it all. Joseph didn't like it all. But there was not one moment that God was not lovingly near and with him. There was not one moment that God had forsaken him. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Can you imagine in this moment? They don't know it yet. And here he is weeping, and they're like, what's happening? He says, I am Joseph. It is my father still living but they could not answer him, and rightfully so, because they were terrified in his presence after all they had done. For Joseph, it's been countless years of absorbing this pain. He tried to forget. He tried to fast-forward and fast-track it. Sometimes you just can't. Here's the key, though. It's only by the power of the Spirit... It's only when we recognize and release and, and, and know that God is with us that He can give us the strength to absorb and to forgive. You can try and try and try to forgive, and you will fail and fail and fail if you do it on your own effort. Because forgiveness, we can't forgive unless we absorb, forgiveness is divine. Forgiveness is a part of who God is, it's His character not ours. And so the Spirit has to lead that. We continue in verse 4, and we finally see this transition. Joseph's going to say some crazy things that make no sense unless God has given him new strength, because he's tried. Unless the Spirit is working in his life, and this is going to become the key for us. It's the power of the Spirit working. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near, probably terrified. I am Joseph, your brother. The one you sold into Egypt. He's not forgotten, and he's not going to pretend this didn't happen. And then the craziness. And now, don't be worried or angry with yourselves for selling me here. He has absorbed the pain by the power of the Spirit. And he says, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. Let's think this through really quick. You don't forgive something like that. You don't forget it. You don't get over it. Just one of those things, let alone being having your brothers have the intent to kill you, selling you into slavery, being framed as a rapist, forgotten in prison. That doesn't happen unless God does it in us. But Joseph allowed that. Verse seven, God sent me ahead of you. You can also recognize God was never away from him. The scriptures make that very clear in this account. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant with the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it is not you who had sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. And that happens. One key here. Joseph and his family have this reconciliation. Jesus calls us to forgiveness, and there's the hope that there can be reconciliation. But he does not always call us to reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. And we'll we'll talk about that as we continue in this practice. But there's times that it is not safe, healthy, or wise to pursue reconciliation. That's why we don't necessarily go to the offender and say, I forgive you. It's the release. It doesn't mean the reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now, if reconciliation can happen and it's safe, that's better. That's God's intent. But we have to just pause and know that. How did Joseph do this? Only because God was with him. He had never left him. And he gave him the power of the Spirit to lead this effort, but it took time. Forgiving does not mean the pain will go away. But in the midst of the pain, we can know that not for a minute, not for a second no part of the journey, have you been left alone? And this is why. We can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus with your pain, and it's real. You've been through things because Jesus has been through it too. I want to close reading one last scripture out of Matthew 27. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and this is to be the end down towards the bottom of the screen. You see those words, my God, my God? Jesus is speaking to the Father, and he says, my God, my God. You you may recall that almost always when Jesus speaks to the Father, he doesn't say, my God. He says, my Father, because he's in relationship with him. But in this moment, something different is happening. He does not say, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father would not forsake him. He says, my God, my God, because Jesus is absorbing our pain and our costs and our decision-making so that you and I can call him Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you and I will never have a moment where we are forsaken by Jesus? We will never have a moment of separation from the Father because of Jesus Because like we said last week, you are forgiven. Not because of any good you do or because of making up for bad or your bad wasn't that bad. No, just because he created you and he delights in you. Because you are a loved, adopted child of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus uttered those words so that you could say, my father, my father, you are here. Only God can give us the strength to absorb the pain But absorbing the pain or cost, it's necessary, but it can only be done by the power of the Spirit. So our next step, next week we'll talk about actually multiple steps. But before you get to any steps of forgiveness, and there's no perfect formula, we have to understand that the key to forgiveness is proximity to Jesus. He's the only one that can lead this effort. The key to forgiveness is proximity to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love that we don't deserve. We thank you that you are good, that you want what's best for us, and that you know what's best for us, and that you are with us always. Allow us to know your love. Jesus, we want to practice your way of life and embrace the call of forgiveness that you've given us, so provide your spirit to lead us, to do the work in us necessary. We submit to you. We humbly come before you have your way in us. May you protect this people, may you protect us as a church from the lies of the enemy, from ourselves. May you work and move and have your way. In the name of Jesus
0: we pray. Amen. I think the biggest thing that I had to navigate through was when Joseph at the end, when Joseph absorbs the pain and truly enters into full forgiveness. And he removes the responsibility from his brothers and actually gives God incredible credit for having the foresight and the wisdom to bring Joseph to that point and to that place so that he could bring life. Um, I, I know from my own story that there have been a lot of things that I have had to navigate. I don't know what your life looks like and what things that you've had to navigate. But sometimes when we look back, we realize that God has been working all along and it doesn't make sense. Oftentimes, God's ways are definitely for sure, actually. God's ways are not our ways. Um, More often than not, what he is orchestrating and doing is so far above. It is levels above what we could even comprehend or understand. And so as we take time to look back on our history and we see the journeys that we've gone through and the things that we've navigated, are we able to see God was with us, that he was there amidst all of those battles? And um, maybe ask yourself, what is it that Jesus is wanting to lead you into that is the process of forgiveness where you need to absorb, to face that pain, that history, so that he can begin to redeem, to heal, to restore your life, to, to bring you back to the fullness that he created you for? What is that thing that maybe has been a barrier of progress for you in your personal life, your spiritual life, the wholeness, the holistic process of your journey that God wants to unlock? And what would it look like for you to sit in that pain, not to wallow, but to really, truly learn how to forgive and release it to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit? Um, I'm so thankful for what this practice is already doing. This is week three and already I I feel the earth beginning to shake as people begin to journey through this. And in a good way, God is beginning to deconstruct some old, but also renew and rebuild some new. And so um, thank you for joining us again. And if you're new, this is your first time. Thanks for, for, for joining us. You are welcome. We're so glad that you could be here. And if you'd like to learn more, as always, you can go to restorationaz.org. And uh, please continue to remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.